Hi, this is Michelle with The Fringe Following. Today is August 25th, 2020. Today I have a special guest, and her name is Lucina, and she has her own podcast. And the title of the podcast is A Truth Rising, and you can find it on Spotify and many other podcast distributors. This is about human trafficking, and she spends a lot of time in her podcast educating the public about how we got to where we are with human trafficking and also what we can do to stop it. So, Lucina, welcome. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yes, of course. So um, your podcast really uh, resonates with us here at The Fringe Following because it's about human trafficking and we talk a lot about how the mainstream media really doesn't give it fair coverage, how they don't go into a lot of the statistics and a lot of the human trafficking um, laws that aren't really protective of of young children, especially not only in America, but also abroad and in Europe. Um, please tell us a little bit more about why you started your podcast and um, why you're so passionate about it. Okay. Thanks for asking that. So I'm kind of, I've kind of morphed the podcast into a project. And I think in the beginning stages, one of the reasons why I started it was because of my own personal story, not of human trafficking, but of a story that of something that, you know, tragic or well, that happened to me when I was, you know, a 14 year old girl living in Canada. And in a roundabout way, I basically knew that I needed to get the story out there. And so it started off as one podcast that never really started. And I think at that time, I knew that I needed to be using my voice for something, but I didn't know didn't have a focus. And I felt like I was still sort of playing a little bit of the victim role there. And so I took some steps back and just kind of, as time went on, I started to really see as more and more of the human trafficking um, uh, stories and cases and, you know, all the information is really starting to be out there and more and more people are starting to connect the dots um, I started to look at some other podcasts because I because it really got me a little bit more fired up. I'm like, okay, this is a really good time to just interject myself in here um, because mm-hmm. with quarantine and everything, I think that people just started to become, I guess, digital warriors in a sense or just other type. This kind of information was reaching them in a different way, so they were they've been able to take more time to look into this and and start to connect some dots themselves. And of course, with the Epstein case and all that, there's just so much stuff that's coming to light. And then you see Operation Under- Underground Railroad. So I started to go, you know what? I really need, this is this is my time. I need to get in here now <laughs> and, and get in on this conversation, but in a different way. And so I wasn't sure what that looked like yet. And so I started to look at some other podcasts, you know, and I'm not putting any of them down. A lot of them just aren't active anymore. And there, there are a couple of them or so that still are actively posting. Uh, and I think they have their own, you know, following their own groove. They have a different way of targeting the subject. And I think it's important what they're doing. However, I just felt like, again, 
there was a lot of the in-between stuff that's kind of fallen between the cracks, like the crumbs that fell between the cracks, but those crumbs make the whole loaf of bread, you know, they're just like such an important part of the entire picture that I can see why. And one thing I also noticed, I could see why people were having a really hard time with seeing the truth of this and admitting it and accepting it, or at least taking a closer look at it. Some of the comments I see from people just on Facebook is really surprising to me, but it's not surprising. The more I dive into this, the more I start to see that there's so much working against everyone that if I just get my voice out there and start talking about it, even with a little bit of my story or pieces of my story infused in it, you know, I can really show people that I understand what it's like to be on the other side of this. And many of us do. And so it's really meant, you know, it's really meant to serve people in a way that will help them to understand what's going on, how we got to where we are today, just as you said before, um, everything, the laws, the the statistics, the cases that are out there, just the constant battle and struggle it is to find justice. And of course, uh, the laws are key here. I'm spending a lot of time on the laws and just how things are interpreted as well. And it's, um, it's a really, it's a big rabbit hole. Let's just put it that way, big and deep Mm -hmm. and cut and just multifaceted. So I knew it all just kind of got me stirred up and I knew it was really time to just, you know, put myself into this conversation and start making more conversations happen. That is so awesome. Mm -hmm. So now is, I agree, now is a really good time. I think a lot of people have more time on their hands. There's definitely a lot less distractions out there. You can't go very many places or do many things still in most of the world. So um, it, it, at least I know for me, that's what got me interested in doing this podcast. I started having the time to look at the stories that the mainstream media covers and start tracing back and, you know, analyzing them for bias and uh, for one-sidedness. Mm-hmm. And so, um, no, totally agree with you. So you mentioned that um, your passion from this stems from something that happened when you were 14. What mm-hmm. is there anything that you would like to share about that with the audience? Sure. Um, I'll share a little bit about that. So basically, you know, I was a 14 year old girl at that point, um, living in, in, uh, Western Canada in Alberta. And, um, Mm -hmm. I didn't know a lot about the laws. I mean, I was actually going through a lot of family, you know, there was a lot of troubles at home. I wasn't really living at home at the time. I was, you know, so I was kind of, um, I was living in a, in a group home and I had weekend visits at my mom's house and it wasn't, they weren't very frequent. Um, mm-hmm. she had a boyfriend, uh, we, I had lived at her house with him there before and he, for the most part seemed fine. Right. And didn't have any issues or anything, mm-hmm. but my mom and I did have a lot of issues and that's just been our life, our whole entire life. We've just never really gotten along. So I ended up in the system Um, and with weekend visits. And so I, I was troubled. I had a lot of issues by that point in my life with uh, my parents being divorced and (laughs) all that stuff. It was messy. And so my weekend visits were kind of like that one sense of normalcy. I belonged somewhere still kind of thing. And so I think 
this one particular weekend, I was invited home to uh, look after my brother because my mom worked night shifts. And for some reason, my sister was not around and she was the one that was still living at home. She was my younger sister. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I experienced something just unexpected. Um, just kind of to make a long story short, I was sleeping and I found, you know, I was being, you know, raped by her boyfriend and, um, in my sleep, of course, awful situation. And then you wake up and you kind of go, Oh my gosh, what's happening. And you realize what's happening. And obviously I have a lot of things went through my mind. I really do remember thinking this is a terrible situation. And I started to think about my situation in life. Like I wasn't living at home. I felt that I was not going to be believed. I mean, I already kind of knew that, and what was I going to do about this? So I just remember everything kind of, I obviously was upset, made a big deal about it. He left, you know, left the room after some time, left the house, disposed of any evidence. I knew that there was evidence. And as soon as he left out of the house, I tried to find evidence. I couldn't find anything. And Mm -hmm. I started to, my mom was not home. She wouldn't have been home for probably a couple of hours or so. And Mm -hmm. the funny thing about the story is that I wasn't supposed to be there. That was not a four plan for me. And Mm -hmm. he was not supposed to be there. He usually worked in nights until seven o'clock in the morning. So he came home early that night. I was there. We both weren't supposed to be there, but we were. So moving forward, obviously the next morning I was quite distraught. I knew that living in a group home was going to work against me. I just already felt that things were, I wasn't sure. I was very hesitant about going to the police, but I wanted to because it was wrong and it was terrible. And I was totally, you know, I was really upset. I was crying the next morning. Mm -hmm. Mom took me back to the group home they figured they kind of coerced me into telling them what happened just as I thought it already started with my mom. She walked out of the room, angry, didn't believe me, just left me there. Of course I was living in a group home anyway. And so there was already Mm -hmm. issues and we, they called the police. The police didn't arrive until gosh, six or seven hours later. Okay. It's probably six or seven hours. And I had done a day of crying and just talking about my story and stuff like that. And Um, the police were in the room. They interviewed me with someone, um, with a social worker and gave my story and it, it quickly flipped like the social worker and the detective walked out of the room and then he came back or cops or a police officer. He came back in the room without or with the social worker because I was underage. Um, and it quickly flipped to me being interrogated. And at, oh, first, wow. it, at first I wasn't sure what mm-hmm. was going on, but I could sense it. And it was really within about two or three minutes, I could see the writing on the wall. It was very clear that it was being turned around on me. And so, and his argument was that I wasn't crying anymore. I was like, I'd been crying all day. I mean, I don't know. And I waited for hours for them to show up. Right. And mm-hmm. that was the first argument. And then the next thing was, you know, he even kind of insinuated, I actually talk about this in my episode that I'm uploading today. Um, he even insinuated mm-hmm. that it had happened without saying those words, but it came down to what I was wearing to as pajamas, right? <laughs> I was like, 
So he tried to turn it around on me entirely. And then it was like, okay, well, we're going to wow. go and question him and we'll, uh, we'll get back to you. Right. And I thought, mm-hmm. I, and then of course, when I stepped out of the room, all my fellow group home, I don't know, sisters, if you don't want foster sisters, whatever you want to call them, everybody kind of was just sort of giving me the cold shoulder. So I felt that there was this general sense of, well, nobody believes me at all. And I was immediately and quickly put into a defensive situation, right? Mm, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so then, you know, not even two days had gone by and we were having our Monday night group home meeting. And suddenly I see out of the window of the cat, a clear shot from the living room to the kitchen. I saw the two police officers banging on the door, demanding to come in and place me under arrest. And I was in Whoa. shock, right? I was in shock. It was these same two police officers and I didn't understand what was happening. So they're reading me my rights and I was in the car and I'm like, why am I, what am I, what did I do? <laughs> why am I under arrest? Yeah. And he, they are reading my rights and he basically just said, well, you know, you were placing you under arrest for public mischief for basically meaning lying to the police. That's was considered public mischief. And I'm like, but did you even go and talk to him? Did you do an investigation? Obviously it had only been less than 48 hours. What kind of investigation could they have actually done? And, Mm -hmm. and uh, of course I was very upset, very angry, confused. And it basically came down to the fact that, um, well, he said he didn't do it. And your mom said that you've been a liar since you were a young child. So, you know, there's no, there's no evidence. So, you know, we're, we're taking you in. I was like, what? Of course, completely in shock still. And here we go. We're on our way to the police station. Felt like the longest ride in the world, even though it was just down the street. And then I was kind of held overnight and it was just a long, rough night. And, you know, um, of course I was then put in a position where, you know, I'm being strip searched. So I'm being continually violated. Right. And then living in kind of a I don't know the hell that my, you know, offender should have been living in. <laughs> and Oh my god. Yeah, and I remember um when I had to go to court um 2 days later, it was like it was over a weekend. I or no, it was over a week, but I went to the went to court 2 or 3 days later. I just can't remember everything now. <laughs> I'm 41, <laughs> so some of those timelines are getting a little blurry, but um and I remember I went down to get um clothing out of a bin, you know, in this detention center. And they, there were no socks and I'm like, Oh, great. No socks. Okay. No big deal. I can deal with it. And I was wearing shoes that were slightly too small for me. So I mean, it's pretty much a typical, you know, jail story. And, Mm -hmm. um, they put shackles on me. Well, what do you think was cutting into my ankles, right? Shackles. And it was just, I was shackled up from ankle with a long chain to my um, to my wrists, you know, on the the handcuffs on my wrists. And I could hardly walk. And this, this guard is like yelling at me to walk faster. And I mean, I was in so much pain and I just, all I could think to myself is that I am the wrong person to be going through this. He should be here going through this and, and worse, you know, and, Mm-hmm. And it was just awful because I didn't know what was going to happen that day. So they're leading me down this hallway and there were, se- it was only men. There were actually no women in all these cells. And so 
as I'm passing by, they're just, yeah. I mean, there was a bunch of cells, but I didn't share, I didn't share a cell with anyone because I was the only, you know, I was female and I was underage, you know. You Um, weren't in a juvenile facility? I was not. I mean, I was in a juvenile facility where they were holding me, but because I was on my way to court. I um, see. I see. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's still. But yeah. yeah. And so they were leading me down this hallway where I could barely walk and all that was happening was all these men were just giving me these just, you know, sexual, you know, hand gestures and things like that. And I remember just sitting in, you know, my cell and I was just so disgusted, you know, it was just like the whole entire way. I just felt like I was prey for all these people, you know, and it just, it just made me feel worse. (laughs) It was just, I feel like it was like a literally the worst situation. And I had no one really in my corner. And so it was the entire day, got to court, judge released me on my own recognizance, you know, obviously for good behavior, just to have good behavior. And Mm -hmm. someone picked me up and he seemed like he was on my side. And he just kind of said, yeah, you know, we see these kinds of cases and things happen all the time. And I thought, geez, (laughs) this, this is crazy. Um, Anyway, so after that, I hadn't spoken. My mom just never talked to me anymore, and she was just mad at me, didn't believe me. I don't really know what happened there. Um, And about a year later, she contacted me and found out that he had done this before because a detective contacted her. And I think it had to do with my going to court and testifying for the other charges that the Mm -hmm. judges basically shut it down because I was telling them what happened and I was basically being cross-examined over what had happened to me. And he was in the back of the room with the cop and I just, I was just looking directly there and telling my story because he knew exactly what he did. And, Mm -hmm. um, the judge kind of at some point just cut me off and just threw it out of court, you know, because I think this was not about a sexual assault charge. This was about something else. And it was a good thing. I'm glad that. What do you think it was about? I think he had heard enough because the charge was about what I was being charged with. It was about public mischief. Mm -hmm. And I see. Yeah. And so when they were kind of cross examining me in my trial or my court date or whatever, they just basically, Um, I I just remember back to that day telling the story and this guy was just asking me really awful questions about it. And I know it had to do with the intended lie (laughs) or the lie that they were saying that I had (laughs) said. And I think after some point, the judge just, he was just like, he just stopped it abruptly and just threw it out. And amazing. And I just thought to myself, like the, the nerve of that man to do this to me, knowing that I, what I had endured and he had the nerve to show up to see my justice being served, you know? And I thought that was very strange. Um, and it just stuck with me forever, you know? Um, Mm. yeah. And then, you know, yeah. And then you just kind of go through life just sort of not realizing, but all this stuff is like deep inside your subconscious mind and even in your body. And I think, um, it just affected so many parts of my life. One of those things was the ability to complete tasks. And I didn't realize that that's very indicative of someone who has deep um, PTSD. 
And, you know, okay. that PTSD can come from anything, can, any kind of mm-hmm. trauma. And right. so if you have, especially in this case where justice was not served, it was kind of left open, nothing was ever done. He's still out there doing what he wants to do, okay, even to this day, and um, probably have has probably offended and nothing's come of it because he chooses his victims very well. And mm-hmm. then, of course, you have the other side of it where your family wasn't really on your side or wasn't there to support you. And even when you do have those conversations with your own mother about it, it's, which is like not even a conversation we, I just don't even ever want to bring it up with her because she is very, um, she still wants to try to turn it around on me. (laughs) And, and so it makes it really difficult because I just, I, I forgive her and I'm not angry at her anymore. It's just, we're not really going to get anywhere with that conversation. And, and that's fine. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not Mm -hmm. in that blame mode anymore. So, um, I've done my own healing with that. And so part of this podcast really is, um, in this project, cause I, it started as a podcast, but I see it as a project now, um, mm-hmm. is really to, to be a voice, be the voice that I know a lot of people would like to be maybe, and just aren't really sure where to start. Aren't really sure where to start looking. They, people are often afraid, I think, to dissent and to talk about, this stuff is really difficult to talk about when you, especially if you're a survivor, because I think some of the reasons that I resisted, I'm resisting a lot has to do with the, still the physical memory. I think there's a lot of physical memory still lodged inside my body, even though the emotional stuff's been very, been dealt with on a better level, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's the, that's the story. And I know, I, I know you kind of said, you want to share something about that? I just felt like the details that people kind of really understand where I feel that I am the right person or one of the right people to, t- it could be anyone, but I feel like I'm one of the right people to talk about it and put myself out there. Um, because I, I experience justice and justice not being served. And mm-hmm. we're seeing the same thing play out time and time again, you know, 25 years later. <laughs> um, yes, it's still the same, so. still the same pattern. Right. So, right. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, that's a, that's a really powerful story. And I thank you for sharing it in detail. I think it is important because people who have had this happen to them can relate because it's often the tiniest detail that'll stay with you decades after the event. And it, it'll often shape and shadow your life for a very long time. I mean, you were someone who was sexually abused and you actually stood up for it. You know, I have sexual, I had sexual abuse in my past. I never stood up for it. Never. Mm -hmm. So you Mm -hmm. actually stood up for it. You actually went to the law, spoke out. And then after you spoke out, you were punished for speaking out and severely punished. I mean, you were just taken to jail and you had to go in front of a judge and wear shackles. So it was kind of like, I mean, it was already horrible and awful that you were sexually abused, but then you got way more piled onto you after the fact. I mean, if it did just stop there, that would have been, you know, just a life full of trauma. But instead, 
and he showed up, which means he probably was the one that was pressing charges. And he used that as a shield and to protect himself. Now, is your mother still with him? No, no. And so back in, um, like I, I think I mentioned, it was like a year, something like a year or so later, she reached out to me. I think it might've been longer because mm-hmm. um, I think, and so that was kind of my point, sorry too, is that after the judge threw it out, I think after some time, a detective contacted my mom. And of course I wasn't living there anymore. And he educated her on the case that they were building against him, which, so for me, when she contacted me, I was really happy that she had contacted me. I mean, I was angry still and hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, but when she, when she told me about this, then I finally felt vindicated in some way, but it was almost like, the first things that went through my mind were it's a little too little too late though. You know, like mm-hmm. the damage has really been done. It's really set in and how are we going to, you know, and there wasn't, there wasn't really any fix for it, but I was really happy that she called me and I went to see the detective and we had a great conversation and I felt vindicated finally by someone. And I'm, I was so glad to know that someone was looking into it. However, um, one of the things that he told me about, was I, I was not his first victim by the time he got to me that he had done this to p- girlfriends, daughters in the past. Okay. Wow. And that they had, but they had, the problem was that they had no evidence. And that's the one thing I talk about in my podcast is are the laws at that time, how they did, they did not, they weren't there to serve me at that time. They certainly did not protect me or help me. And I go in, in a little bit into more detail about how and why um, nothing happened, nothing ever came of it, why it was turned on me. And yes, you're saying he, he pressed charges, obviously, but um, you know, why wasn't there, why wouldn't, weren't they willing to do anything about it? And it just really simply comes down to the fact that um, it, there was no evidence to, pro- to prosecute, so it wouldn't have made it anywhere. And so the police generally decide on what gets to the crown prosecutor in Canada. And I, I think it's kind of similar in the U S um, from mm-hmm. the cases I'm reading. So yeah, so they don't, they don't go to the crown prosecutor because they know that it doesn't meet the requirements for the law. So it's and, not going to go anywhere. <laughs> and I can see that. Okay. I, I can see that and I'm not justifying it, but that if they knew this about him and they didn't have any proof, I still don't understand how it turned around to, to them taking you. I mean, even if there was no evidence. Now, I'm assuming you weren't physically examined. A rape kit wasn't used. None of that was. None of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know back then if they had all of that, you know, and I, you know, because that was several years ago. So, you know, now it's like standard, you know, procedure. But it just makes me wonder, you know, okay, fine, there's no evidence. But how did they turn around on you. That just seems horribly unjust. And like, you're already, you know, on the floor and then they're kicking you when you're down Mm -hmm. until you pass out. It just, it blows my mind. And, and yet other, when you were picked up by that one guy that seemed to be on your side from jail, he said, yeah, this happens all the time. I'm just like, oh my God, that's awful. (laughs) I just, uh, it makes me want to cry. Honestly, I just... 
Well, yeah. in the, th- that time, and it is, it's not an easy thing to think about because if it happened all the time then, and then of course, mm-hmm. if you, you know, for, you know, if anyone wants to go back and, and listen to any of my episodes, I do talk about, you know, more about the statistics and I do pick on Canada a little bit because that's where I'm originally from. And, but when I, as I expand into the U S with it, being that my husband's American and I don't think it's just a Canadian problem. Um, and as I expand into other countries as well, I'm seeing the same patterns. There, there really isn't a lot of difference. Maybe the statistics aren't as high or the numbers or the numbers aren't exactly the same, but the, but it's still a very high percentage of people are not finding justice being Mm -hmm. served properly. Um, because the laws are, it's similar pretty much everywhere you look, the law says like, it's only rape if this happens and it's only this, if this happens. So you have to meet those requirements. And the biggest problem with that is tell me what two, um, rape or sexual assault cases are the same, like none of them. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. No two cases are the same. So how can you have a universal law kind of, cause it's, it's not worded exactly the same way, but it, it's mm-hmm. worded. It's very similar no matter where you look. It's just, um, I find in the States, like for example, in the state of Colorado, I point out more in, in episode three mm-hmm. and they basically, but you can, anyone can go look this up. It's very well defined. Everything to do with sexual assault and rape, gang rape, the whole nine yards, it's very well defined. And I think that's really great. But the problem is, is the cases that are getting basically a slap on the wrist or nothing, um, or being dismissed or whatever you might want to, whatever happens there where no justice is served. I I don't know or understand how that's happening when their law is a lot more clear. And even the law in Colorado, even clearly defines my offense with something happening in my sleep or in a person's sleep. So it's obviously a common thing oh. where the state of Colorado felt, hmm, we should really put this in here. Um, wow. That's, that's amazing. Okay. It is so amazing. I'm, I read somebody it. Somebody has it right. But as you're saying, it's by this, it's not even by the country, but it can be by the state mm-hmm. or I guess in Canada, what would it be by the Province, it would be by or? province, but the uh-huh. the criminal code of Canada is actually for the entire country. So it is universal for uh-huh. the country. Okay. So gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so it's a little different and it used to be, and, and there really isn't a lot for provincial laws, but one of the biggest things that overshadows the entire process in every province and, mm-hmm. and in every case that does make it is case law. Case law is so powerful in Canada. I think it's powerful everywhere. And I think that sometimes case law can be a really great tool for the right reasons. But there's so much case law in Canada on some on the cases, for example, that don't get convicted based on whatever reason that it always overshadows and overwrites the law. You share some court um, cases with me. Mm -hmm. I was curious if you wanted to kind of go into some of those, the uh, 14-year-old girl in Spain. The story is, I'll just share it with the listeners, that um, this article was written back in November 5th of last year, so 2019, pretty recent. Um, Thousands descended on the streets of Spain, and this is in the independent 
um, to show their opposition to a verdict which saw five men accused of gang raping a 14-year-old cleared of the charge because she was in an unconscious state. So when you read the article, they were not charged with rape. They were charged with abuse. And as a result of that, the sentence was... Uh, five men were sentenced to 10 to 12 years in jail, considerably less time than a, convic- a conviction for rape, which would be considered as a, which would have been a sentence of between 15 and 20 years. So, and it was because she was un- unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, wow. You know, um, it, and it goes in with consent because all the details of that case are not actually there. Um, Mm -hmm. what's missing is that they had video, um, of this and the judge could clearly see that this was happening to her, but she wasn't saying no. Right. Um, because she was unconscious. So how could she consent? Right. (laughs) And so they had video proving this happened and their rape law says that you have to be basically punched or beaten in some way to show physical harm. And just always goes back to, well, okay, so if I was beaten physically, that means I actually was raped. Okay. I mean, it doesn't always mean that, but I know it could be part of it, but it's, and and then they also, one of the guys had a gun. So what was she going to do? Um, And they, and so it was good that they still got time for it, but it wasn't properly prosecuted but that, but to their laws, it was because it didn't show that she was consenting or not consenting. So that again, leaves it wide open for interpretation. And even though she was unconscious, right. Second of all, right. if she's unconscious and drugged up or and intoxicated, whatever they did to get her to that state, um, mm-hmm. you know, if they had a gun, I, I'm assuming mixed with that and fear, Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I don't know anyone that wouldn't be afraid of that situation. And then you have five men. They weren't just, they weren't like 15 year old guys. They were men. And, and so it's a, it's a, it's an awful, I just can't even, you know, it's such a hard thing to understand. And I can understand why people in Spain were such in such an uproar because the law, I can't even say the law, the law failed her because the law wasn't written to help her. Right. But the people involved in this, could they not see that this was wrong? Right. Right. She was clearly being raped. (laughs) I, I don't know what more evidence you needed than a video. Right. So. Right. She was raped on video. That's right. I'm like, really, really that, you know, it boils down to that. I, mm-hmm. I it was just, that's awful. That's so, it, it, it really makes me feel like the laws aren't there to protect us as, you know, potential victims. If, if that happens to us, you know? Right. And the thing is, is that the law as written at that time in Spain, I mean, that was only in November of last year when people were outraged. So it was shortly after the verdict was given. Um, so as of last year, the laws basically said that rape, it's rape if it has these factors, like, you're, you know, you've been physically, you know, hurt, abused, punched, things like that. That means it happened. And so you have a problem because 
no, the laws aren't there to protect you, but who's that law serve, right? At the end of it all. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what gets me fired up. And that's why I started this because who, who are these laws protecting? Who are they helping? Because they're not helping victims. We know that and survivors, right? And, and so it deters people from wanting to report something because nothing's going to be done or it's going to be treated lightly or it's going to be a lesser charge and right. So it demeans the victim further. Right. Right. No, I, I, I totally agree. And, um, to, you know, circle back to the podcast here where we talk about mainstream media, Mm -hmm. they really have, kind of turned a blind eye, in my, in my opinion, to a lot of sexual abuse, the holes in the law, um, Epstein, Maxwell, like Maxwell should be one of the biggest stories of 2020. However, we don't hear much about her at all. I mean, we hear little snippets here and there, but they haven't focused on, um, you know, her, her trial, who she could reveal, um, and it's just, I, it really, it almost feels like it's not just the law, but the media overall isn't, mm-hmm. isn't helping either. I think the same, I think the same thing, um, you know, as I've withdrawn myself <laughs> from the media and removed it for the most part in my life, um, I really start to see or discern very clearly or a lot more clearly kind of what's going on here. We know, and I can see that they're not, they're just talking about the same stuff all the time. And it's usually not that it's usually not the things that matter to the everyday person. They're just feeding you what matters to them and their narrative and whoever's. I mean, one thing I've been learning a lot of in my study of, I think I shared with you privately and my study of secret societies and things like that is that you just got to follow the money and find out who owns them. And once mm-hmm. you find that out, um, you'll see who their where their allegiance lies. I mean, that's just kind of what I keep coming to the same conclusion of, no matter what money trail I follow. Um, okay, because people okay. have allegiance to you know if you have a major supporter of someone of something you know like for example, if you're a major news station and you get a large amount of support from certain, which is true. And I I didn't even say this, if you just do, okay, they just do, they get a lot of support from outside, you know, organizations and what have you, what's happening is, is they are being, they're showing their allegiance to the money, right? So if the, and so I don't want to get too much into that because I know that that's not what it's all about, but who are they, who are they allegiant to or who's their allegiance to? And so who are they protecting? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I don't want to get too deep into that, but if you look at secret societies more in depth and there's tons of stuff on it and I can give that to you privately and it's definitely going to be part of the new podcast that's going to be rising up out of this as well too. But, um, you know, I start to see who's controlling the narrative and why and, I kind of go, I'm not here to point fingers, by the way. I just don't, I don't like doing that. I don't like villainizing certain people because I don't believe it's one 
entity. Mm-mm. But I think it's a it's a group of entities and individuals that have the same values and want the same outcome. And I'm I'm fine going down this rabbit hole a little bit because it's funny you mentioned mm-hmm. this. Just this morning, I read an article on Columbia Journalism Review, and the name of it is Journalism's Gatekeepers, and it came out August 21st, so just four days ago. And in it, it says that last August, NPR profiled a Harvard-led experiment to help low-income families find housing in wealthier neighborhoods. And according to the researchers citing the article, these children could see 183,000 greater earnings over their lifetime. However, if you squint as you read the story, this is the article, you'll notice that every quoted expert is connected to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which helps fund the project. And if you're really paying attention, you'll also see the editor's notes at the end of the story, which reveal that NPR itself receives funding from Gates. Mm -hmm. So it starts going in deeper. And it says here that they found that the Gates Foundation has made through the end of June more than $250 million going towards journalism, including BBC, NBC, Al Jazeera, ProPublica, The Guardian, Medium, Financial Times, The Atlantic, Gannett. It goes on and on. And one of the things that we forget is that the newspapers, the news sources are struggling, particularly newspapers, because nobody reads them anymore and everything's online and they were very slow to jump on the online bandwagon for the most part. So if you start looking at all the money that they're giving to these very hungry newspapers and news sources that really need that money, then yeah, it might just kind of bias how they report because they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. And it really, and, and Bill and Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is just one example of that. Um, I'm sure there's several other billionaires um, that probably give to news sources, but it does make me wonder. I mean, that to me just really justified my po- my podcast even more that the mainstream media is biased and they have, and as you said, so wonderfully followed the money, boom, mm-hmm. there it was. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And so I guess one would have to wonder why the money wouldn't want to cover human trafficking. Do you right. have any thoughts? On that, <laughs> well, <laughs> woo. You know, honestly, I love talking about these topics with like mind or with people who are are looking, searching for truth, and trying to understand what is happening and what has been happening. And to me, but going back to your question, I do want to go back to that question. I don't want to get too off track here, but mm-hmm. to me, why? Well, first of all, I think what we're seeing a lot, anything that they do cover from, let's say Bill and Melinda Gates is always this nice flowery story and all this stuff and his, his um, take on vaccinations and things like that. And I just always think to myself, mm-hmm. when did we make him like the surgeon general? <laughs> when did we right. elect him president? I don't recall that, but whatever. And when did he get his medical degree? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. When did he get his right. medical degree? Why isn't anyone, I mean, I think people are questioning, but people who are still watching this in the media, they got to be asking themselves these questions more. I don't know though. I, I, I would hope. It's more like <laughs> Bill Gates says this, Bill Gates says that. And it's a lot of it is how the media presents it, right? Bill Gates mm-hmm. said this. And they don't offer any people being interviewed saying, well, I don't understand why this man's giving us advice. I mean, they don't even go down that avenue. So when you're getting all this one-sided coverage about how wonderful it is that he's getting involved in this and all the money he has, 
Um, Yeah, that's when for me, I have to go to the fringe sources and start going down those rabbit trails, you know, but yeah. Not to interrupt you, go go ahead. No, Keep no, going. no, you're good. No, 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 no. But that's but you've made a very good point there because that's where we're at. We're at the fringe sources, and that's okay because we're bringing. There's more. What we're, what I'm seeing is more citizen journalists, people doing like what we're doing, right? Talking about right. topics on a different level that we're not going to get on the mainstream. And it isn't a, really a wonder why podcasting is up over twenty percent in 2020, right? And yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not a wonder because people have things to share and talk about. And that narrative out there is just always being forced on us. And more and more people are, I think more and more people are disengaging from the media. So they do, but there are still people who aren't. So going back to why do you think that is? Well, I think if you look at Bill and Linda Gates in the media and what's covered, you can kind of figure out that what, where their focus is, Right. And, Mm -hmm. but then of course, then not talking about human trafficking and all of the stuff that's going on there and all the holes in the laws and all the issues that, and the lack of justice. Well, I don't, I can't necessarily implicate one organization, but we want to look more at who else is backing up the, you know, billionaires or people who are filthy rich. Okay. Who are backing up these media, you know, these media sources. And, you know, one of the major ones, if you actually look and I've seen it and it's the Rockefeller foundation. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I have seen that. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and I can't personally or personally implicate, implicate or say, oh yeah, it's definitely that. But the more I look into this, the more I start to see, um, a pattern with the money. And the money goes between a lot of these other organizations and entities. So they basically cycle money back and forth. So that's why I say they all, they all have different goals with their agendas, but they're all working towards the same agenda. Like they all have their own moving part in it mm-hmm. and they're all putting their money together and supporting these different outlets and avenues. And this is why I was saying, as I dive deeper into the study of secret societies and who's kind of pulling the strings on every major part of our lives. Like I'm talking education, media, you know, government, you know, even the police force, you know, it just keeps going. I mean, you could go on forever. There are, there's so much behind the scenes with the money that the more we follow it, the more we see who the big players are there. Mm -hmm. And then the more, the more we can kind of draw our own conclusions on that. I don't need to implicate them. I think if we just do that, it, some of it doesn't even take long to can spend 15 or 20 minutes finding out who the major supporters of one major news station is or all of them. And you'll find the organization names listed. Yes. Um, and same with some of the, uh, the um, like any of the projects that are, um, anything that's big out there that's being funded, you just look at the supporter, you can find the supporters list easily and you can look at their dealings, but you can also then start to see that some of these people like Bill and Melinda Gates had, don't have just one foundation. They're on the boards of several of these foundations and entities. Yes, that's very true. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so are the Rockefellers and so are other people. So they're just mingling with each other and just bouncing, you know, throwing each (laughs) other, you know, throwing each other between each organization along with the money. So 
that's why I think every person involved has a vested interest in what is said and what is not said. And that's why we're predominantly seeing the narrative that we're seeing and we're not seeing the other stuff. We're not hearing from it. And therefore that's why citizen journalism has really taken on a whole new face in 2020. Uh, Wow. That is awesome. I mean, that what you just said. Oh, I love it. Oh, wow, Lucina, I'm so glad you came on today. I really do. Um, you you really have a lot of wonderful insight into um, not just human trafficking, but just the you know the world, the politics, the the, the fringe um, that people are going to. All of that. It just thank you. This is about being you know, helping you become independent thinkers. I mean, we can sit here and give you this information all day long and that's what we're still going to do. But for me, it's really important to help people become more independent thinkers, become your own, you know, become your, you know, you become your own best weapon in your defense and all of this and really understand in depth what has been happening for not just a few years. This is, this is why I do what I do because this is not something that just happened, you know, with Epstein's Island or, um, you know, Operation Underground Railroad isn't, you know, just like a fly-by-night operation that just got set up a couple of months ago, right? Um, right. There, this has been going on for so long. All of this, the stuff with the secret societies, the the controlling of information, all of it. You know, you can trace it back to you know, history, Rome, right? Greece. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just go back that far, you're going to see the same patterns. And if people, I just, for me, it's so important that people just take the time to look into it more and arm yourself with information because you don't know, what you don't know cannot help you. But the more knowledge and understanding you have, the more power and control that you have over your choices. And the more you can start to see the signs and the, I guess the signs, or you can start to identify patterns and you can protect your family better. You can protect yourself better. You can better prepare for the future. Um, You can learn more about what you can do, I guess, on a local state, you know, county, whatever level that you're able to get involved in maybe, Um, You can educate your neighbors and friends and it's the encouragement for me, encouraging people to just, you don't have to get as deep into the topics if you don't want to, but there's so much out there that if you just start somewhere, you'll learn to think for yourself instead of getting your information from the big media machine. Right. I totally agree. And I think that once you start thinking for yourself, once you actually set yourself apart and start going down other avenues than getting all your news from mainstream media, you start to realize you can see the bias in mainstream media more. It When you're immersed in it and that's all you have on, if you're one that plays NPR 24-7 or you know has CNN on in the background all the time, you are being brainwashed. <laughs> So <laughs> out of that, and I'll, I'll be blunt here, if you can get out of that, and, and, and even Fox, and I've come down on Fox, it's not the right or the left, it, the whole media machine is just mm-hmm. controlled by so many different people, and you're only going to hear so much on it. Not saying that all their news is fake, I'm not saying that at all, but if you can start setting yourself apart from it, 
when you start reading or hearing their stories again, you can see it with a different eye. And that's what's important. You can st- suddenly see the bias. There are so many people out there that, that all they do is go to mainstream media and they can't see the bias as even though to me, it's as clear as the nose on that reporter's face. And so that is important. You have to kind of set yourself apart. I'm not saying stop reading the news, start questioning, is this really the truth? And that's mm-hmm. when you start finding other truths that may conflict with, with with what they're trying to sell you. You know, no, not, and that, I totally agree 100%. And I think, you know, again, they are counting, when I say they, I'm talking like there's a lot of people involved in that they, okay? So I'm not, yes, yes. but when I say they, that's what I mean. And so they are counting on the majority of us to not be asking questions, to continue to turn on, you know, all of their news sources uh, and Mm -hmm. listen. And they're counting on that and that we're just going to take what we're being fed. That's how the system is designed. And it works for a lot of people. Um, I think even people that say that they've, they're kind of quote unquote woke. I just don't think that they, I, I don't, I can't judge them personally, but I think that even them sometimes, I think they're still, they think that they're woke because they watch Fox News, right? <laughs> or, they, <laughs> or they think they're woke because they listen to NPR and or read articles from NPR and that they've got this grand new perspective. And it's an illusion of choice. Yes. Um, it really, it really isn't. It, it's such an illusion of choice. And it didn't really sink in until I stepped back. And I really started to just dial into, you know, more fringe news um, type sources because now I'm getting some real information here. And just because it's not on any of the major news stations doesn't mean it's not true. And that's what they want us to believe. So they don't want us going there. Right. And, and so you'll find there's so much information out there. It might be biased or it might be a little bit hard. I think with the search engines now I do find it is a little bit harder because they have sort of manipulated the search engines, but you can still find, you can still find information. Um, it's out there. And, and I, I wish we could go to a library. I mean, I wish we could go to more concrete sources, but it's not that easy anymore, but everything's online. So once you start following the money, you start following who's doing what, where things are going, you'll start to see a pattern and once you tune out the news for a while and you start looking at those fringe sort listing those fringe sources or following more of what they're where they're guiding you because I feel like a lot of us are just sort of saying this is what we've discovered and this is where we're at with it and it's out there and it's not this source or that source and you can go and look for yourself and see it like we're not we're not here to tell you that you should think or believe something um, which is very unlike the mainstream narrative so I guess that's my final thoughts, you know, be an independent thinker. And the more you arm yourself with this knowledge, the more that you're able to have the strength to, I guess, dissent, be a different, be a voice that's opposing what's happening. Because again, you can't, you cannot use something that you do not know you have, or that, you know, we have, or you just, when you have that knowledge, then you can do something with it. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Lucina. I really appreciate you coming to join us today and to um, discuss human trafficking and also the mainstream media. And um, if 
people want to catch her podcast, it is on Spotify, as I recommended. There's also other sources. iTunes. iTunes as well. It's on, I believe, seven major. It's on Outcast now. It's on Google. It's on the Google one. I can't remember what it's called. Um, It's on, (laughs) I believe it's on Stitcher. It's on, yeah, it's on about seven of them right now. Um, and, but definitely on iTunes. So I know a lot of people have iTunes. So find, find us there if you're interested and, um, subscribe, listen, it's still kind of getting fired up and, uh, you know, we're still kind of, I'm still kind of fleshing out the platform, but, um, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm still doing it. It's just, it's gonna, it's all forming. It's, it's it's forming into its own beast, you know? (laughs) Um, right. Right. It sounds like you're going to have some some offshoots as well, right? From it. Yes, I am. I am. And that's why I'm calling this a project. It's, um, there are so many things involved in the project that I believe that, um, sexual assault and human trafficking and exploitation, I believe that that deserves its own platform. Um, I don't want to get too much into the other stuff because I really feel like people need to, um, be able to focus on that topic. Um, cause there's so much involved in it. And the other topics, there will be definitely a different offshoot coming as well. So, well, that's 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 going to keep you busy, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is, you know. But it's all right. (laughs) It's all right, you know. I I believe that this is what I should be doing. So, you have a voice, and you want to use it, and you want to give justice, and you want to call these things out. And absolutely. there's so many people out there that want to, but never do. So more power to you, more power to you. Once again, the podcast is called a truth rising and, um, be sure to check it out on the many platforms that it's on. And I am Michelle and this is a French following and please, we encourage comments and ratings. Uh, Even if you hate us, just give us a rating. We want to know you're out there. Give us some comments. Let us know what you think about our content or what you would like to hear us talk about. And also, if you can press that subscriber button, that helps us get a little higher ranking in iTunes, and we'd really appreciate it. So thank you for tuning in. And thank you, Lucina, for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you.